Good morning, Grumlaw. How you guys doing? Yeah, good, good. Hey, we're, uh, we're in part three of this brand new series called Brand New, uh, which means if we're in part three, it's kind of like you're walking in like halfway through a movie, right? So if for whatever reason you missed any of the last two weeks, really would encourage you, go check out grumlaw.com slash messages, or you can go to Grumlaw Church anywhere you guys grab your podcast and catch up. And if this is your first week here, man, I am, I am so glad you guys are here, chose to spend just a few moments of your, your weekend here with us. Uh, you know, something that I think that all of us know is that religion, religion is something that is so, so powerful, right? And, and I think because religion is so powerful, it, it can also be dangerous. And, and oftentimes, as I'm sure you guys know, uh, religion, it, it ends up in the hands of, of just a few group of people, right? A small group of people, generally men. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why it's so powerful is that it's often fueled by superstition and fear, right? right? It's often fueled by superstition and fear. And perhaps the thing that makes religion so powerful and so dangerous is that it's anchored in our conscience. And our conscience can be, it can be connected to truth, but, but our consciences can also be connected to error. And as Shay brought up last week, right, our consciences determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. Our consciences determine religious reality, whether they reflect reality or not. And for me, I, I grew up in Canada. I grew up going uh, to, to a Christian church pretty much my entire life. Uh, and my parents, though, they decided that it'd be best to send me to like a private uh, Catholic elementary school. And, and while I was there, we went to mass about once a month. And during that time, I realized that the Catholic religion was very different than what I had grown up and my experience with religion. And I remember probably around the second grade, my friends started talking about how excited they were about taking their first communion. And I don't know, maybe it was just because like I was young and dumb, uh, or, or, or maybe it was because, uh, you know, everything that my friends and I did was a competition, you know, whether it was like a single game turned into, you know, like a, a three-game tournament or a seven-game tournament, like everything was a competition. But as they're starting to talk about getting, getting excited about inviting their friends and their family in for First Communion, I remember in that conversation piping, I was like, hey, I already took my first communion, like, like as if it was some sort of race or something, right? Um, and fast forward a couple of years, my family moved to Chicago, and, uh, and I remember my friends, I can't even say I was engaged in the conversation. I remember them talking about like the music they were listening to and the movies they were going to see. And, and really had no idea what they're talking about. Uh, I remember going home and asking, asking my, my parents, talking to my mom, I was like, hey, why, why are people listening to corn, like a vegetable? Like it doesn't even make any sense. And, and like smashing pumpkins, I thought that was just something that like the bad kids did at Halloween. Like you're listening, like it just, I just didn't really understand. And then like the movies and I was, my mom, like why can't we go to the movies? Like why, why are we not listening to this music? And I remember their answer to all these questions was something to the effect of, well, we're just not supposed to. It's just not something that we do. You see, because for our family, like those were the things that, that, were, that were our, like we felt like religiously guilty or, or, or you know, our consciences were shaped by these things that we believed to be true. And, and I think all of us, all of us have been impacted by this, you know, and I, you know, things that, you know, growing up, we felt religiously guilty about that now we don't, like, 
like newsflash, like I take my kids to the movies and I don't feel guilty about it at all. Um, and, and we've all experienced stuff like that or things that, you know, growing up, like we didn't feel guilty about and now all of a sudden we do. And, and I think it, especially in, in this country, to some degree or another, I think all of us, are, are, our consciences have been shaped by this, by, by this version of Christianity, especially if you grew up here in the United States, our consciences have been shaped by a version of Christianity that is really like a, a mixture of what Jesus actually taught and what we've come to refer to as the temple model. Uh, and and in, in this series, uh, our hope and our desire, and again, if you've been listening in the last two weeks, hopefully you've been, been picking up on this, but our, our, our hope is that we'll be able to tease out and separate out what did Jesus actually teach and what is temple model. And, and, and I think that as we begin to really grasp that, I think that we'll really have a better understanding of what God wants of us. Uh, you know, when we refer to the temple model, uh, there's, there's really a couple main components, right? They're, they're sacred places, uh, and they're, they're sacred texts, and there's sacred men. It's generally men. And then there, there's always these, these sincere followers, or, or sometimes superstitious, right, followers, or maybe scarred followers, or, or, or just scared followers, but, but when we refer to the temple model, we're not just referring to this Jewish temple model, the context that Jesus was in. We're referring to the temple model that can be seen like in, in the Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans. You can see it today even, right? You can see it in, in like Scientology and in some of the cults. Or if you go to the remote parts of the world where, where you, you have like these mud hut places of the world where they have witch doctors, like you see this same template for the temple model. And, and, and one of the things, one of the things that, that when Jesus came, when Jesus came here, uh, he, he came here to do something brand new. Because the, the problem with this, the problem with this is that with this temple model, you have these men, right? These sacred men. And these men, they stand at the gates of heaven and hell. And, and they determine who goes where and who doesn't get to get in. And I think for some of us, we've We've got to that, gotten to that place where we've kind of started to see right through that. We've, we've gotten a little skeptical about this whole temple model thing. And, and what I would really encourage you this morning is if, if you've had those kind of thoughts, to just, just track with me just here for a minute. When Jesus Christ came here on earth 2,000 years ago, he did not come to establish temple model 201 or 301. Right? He came here to do something brand new. I mean, in fact, Jesus actually said, he said when he was here on earth, that he came to launch something brand new that was for all people for all time. He, he came here to establish a brand new covenant, covenant, a new arrangement between God and man. I mean, he, he was talking about the, the fact that every, every temple system, it has all kinds of laws and all kinds of things that, that we're to do and not do. But when Jesus came here, he told us, man, I've given you this one command, this one command that was to be the ethic that determines our behavior so that if we enter into a situation and, and we're unsure of what we should do, just stop and pause and ask yourself, what would love require of me? If, if you're unsure what you should do, just stop and pause and ask yourself, what would love require of you? And he launched a new movement, a movement where love would replace law-keeping, where, where self-sacrifice 
would replace animal sacrifice, where the vertical, right? I mean, like trying to figure out, am I, am I okay with God? Where the vertical would be judged by the integrity of the horizontal. Jesus even taught us, right, as he was teaching his disciples, his followers, he said, hey, if you're ever at the temple, maybe you're trying to make things right with God or you're there, you got to sacrifice. And in that moment, you realize there's something messed up. There's a sin, there's a fence, an offense between you and your brother. Uh, I want you to leave your sacrifice there at the temple and I want you to go and make things right with your brother. And in that moment, in that time, this was something that was so new. I mean, it, it ruffled all kinds of feathers because it was brand new. Then the Apostle Paul, he, he came along after Jesus. And, and the Apostle Paul, now he, 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 he was the kind of guy, I mean, this type A, uh, super driven guy. He was a Pharisee, meaning he was a teacher of the religious law. Now this dude, like he had the entire Old Testament memorized like all 613 laws. And he was like, you know, patting himself on the back, right? Because he was pretty, he was pretty proud of the fact he was keeping those laws like to the letter and, and he was teaching others. How, I mean, this was the type of guy, again, type A driven personality that when he heard about this Christianity thing, he set out on a mission. I'm gonna wipe this movement out. I'm gonna do God a favor and just take care of it. And so this guy, Paul, this Pharisee, this Pharisee of Pharisees, he's got papers in his hand and he's marching on his way to go and do exactly that. He had the authority from, from the rulers of the, the, that area, that land in the, in the religious system to go and arrest and persecute Christians. And on his way to do that, God himself, Jesus Christ himself, got a hold of Paul. And Paul, he became a convert to Christianity. Not only did he become a convert to Christianity, this guy actually became a spokesperson for Christianity. And so Paul, more than anyone else, he knew that you cannot, you dare not mix the old with the new because a little bit of temple model, a little bit of that legalism, a little bit of that temple thinking, you know, mixed with this new Jesus movement, it had the potential to ruin, to impact the entire thing. I mean, a, a little bit of the wrong thing could impact the whole thing, the entire thing. And so Paul, he's writing in this, this letter to the Galatians and, and Pastor Shea camped on this last week. Uh, he wrote to the, in this letter to the Galatians, which is a province in the, the, Roman, the Roman empire. And here's what Paul said. He says, the only thing that counts. Okay, again, like all 613 laws memorized, even the big 10 memorized, right? But he says the only thing, the one thing, the only thing that counts is your faith expressing itself through love. Your faith in Christ expressing itself in how you love one another. Everything gets boiled down to this. And, and then Paul, he writes, he writes to, to the, the believers in this, this other Roman province, uh, uh, called, the city called Corinth. And as he's writing to, to these believers, you have these Jewish believers. Now, the, the Jewish believers are still trying to figure things out, right? I mean, they, they, they like this Jesus movement. They like this new teaching, but they're still trying to figure this out uh, because they're getting ready to go worship. And they're thinking, okay, like in, in the old way, we had to go to Jerusalem to worship. Um, do we still have to do that? And then the Gentiles are like, well, we got it easy because we don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We got like pagan temples like right down the street. Uh, and Paul, he's, he's like, no, 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 no. Here's what Paul says. And it's, it's kind of an audacious statement, right? He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples? And I mean, like, hold on a second, Paul. Like our bodies can't be temples. That's the temple in Jerusalem. That's the, how are our bodies temples? 
And he's like, no, 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 that was the old way. That was the old covenant. That was the old system. Like there's a, there's a new thing that Jesus is doing. You're now like a portable temple. A portable temple, Paul? Like, have you lost your mind? He's like, no, 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 no. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. To which if you were a Jew in that day, you're like, no, 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 Paul. Like, well, now you've crossed the line. Like the Holy Spirit of God indwells the, the Holy of Holies right in, right in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem. How could that possibly be? To which Paul would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was, that was the old way. That was the old way of doing things. The, the Holy of Holies, man, it is of no significance anymore. That was the old way of doing things. Jesus has come to do something new. It has played its role, but it was like a cocoon that birthed this brand new thing. And now you are as holy as the holy of holies. You're a portable temple. And now the Holy Spirit of God indwells the believer. So now the Christians around you, the slaves next to you, the children, they are sacred in the eyes of God. And, and what's so fascinating in this, this new mind-blowing teaching, what's so fascinating is that the church got off to such an extraordinary start. And, and as, as you think about, it, I mean, how well the church started, one of the things that's fascinating is to look at some of the literature of, of those that like didn't believe in Jesus, right? Those that were not followers of Jesus. And like, what did they say? And, and the truth is there is so much writing out there uh, that those who did not believe in Jesus wrote about first century Christians. And, and here's one of the things that, that, they, that they saw that just, they just didn't know, they didn't have a place in their mind for how they loved one another. You see, in this, in this era of, of history, if you had a child that was sick or, or, or a girl, or for whatever reason your child became an inconvenience to you, you could walk them out outside the city gates and you could leave them there for the wild animals to eat them or for them to starve. And, and, and what, what blew the, these non-Christians' minds, like just, they just couldn't grasp it, is that these first century Christians would take in these children, would love these children, these orphans, as their own. They would raise them as their own. And they wouldn't just do it with, with these children. They, they would take care of the poor. They would, they would love one another. They, they would forgive one another. They would care for one another. They one anothered one another really, really well. But what but what captured their attention more than any of this, as awesome as this was, was that first century Christians, they were not afraid of death because they served, they served a risen savior. And, and, and this, this, this time in Christianity, there was no like Bible, especially if you're a, a Gentile Christian, you didn't even have the Old Testament. There was no canon. There was no official writings of the church. All that they had were the stories of Jesus. And the 25 or so years after Jesus, the apostle Paul, you know, he's on the scene and he's, he's beginning to write down some of these teachings and, and these letters that he sends out to these churches. But, but, you know, again, like not every church had all these letters and, and then they only maybe had copies or portions of these letters. And, and what was incredible, what was incredible is that, that, they, that all that they had was their extraordinary faith was fueled by a love for one another. They had extraordinary faith that was fueled by their love for one another so that if they forgot everything else, that they were to remember that, that Jesus died for my sins 
that he rose from the dead and he called us to love one another. And the church, the church was gaining extraordinary, extraordinary traction uh, among this first century time in history. And then in AD 70, as I'm sure you know, uh, that the Jewish temple was completely destroyed was completely destroyed. It was as if God like entered again, once again into human history and punctuated the end of the temple model. I mean, the, the Jewish temple model was done. I mean, Jesus himself, when he was here on earth, he came and he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, right? And then he gave us, he gave us two rules. He says, he says, love God and demonstrate your love for God by the way you love other people. I mean, this is what Jesus came and he said of himself. And what was extraordinary was that people who had absolutely nothing in common in Christ found that they had everything in common. Then fast forward a couple hundred years. October 28th, year 312 AD, uh, Emperor Constantine, he's on his way to do battle with the co- his co-emperor Maxentius to decide who is gonna be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. And on his way to do battle, he, he stopped because he has this vision in the sky. And you guys probably know this from, from your time in school, right? He has this, he has this vision of this, in the sky of this cross. And he either hears something audibly or it's written in the sky. And it says, in this sign, conquer. And so, so Constantine gets off of his horse. He paints a cross on the shields of his, of his soldiers and he marks, marches his army into battle. And Constantine that day is victorious. And Constantine's faith begins to grow. And, and he begins to be hailed as a victor by Christians in this, in this era. And suddenly, suddenly, Christianity begins to gain status in the kingdom. The cross now becomes a symbol of the Christian crucifixion, specifically the crucifixion of Jesus. And even though this phrase, the Holy Roman Empire, wouldn't really be used until the 12th or 13th century, like this is where that is officially birthed. But the problem was, is that the Roman Empire was way more Roman and way more empire than it ever was a holy Roman Empire. So so a year later, Constantine, he legalizes Christianity and he begins to pour all kinds of money into the church and he begins building churches anywhere he's heard that a martyr has been killed. And and, and then the churches, they don't have to pay taxes, right? And, And so if you're rich and you got lots of land, you're like, well, I'm gonna donate my land to the church because then I don't have to pay taxes. And so now all of a sudden, like it pays to be a Christian under the leadership of Constantine. And, and, and he, begins to, he begins to pour all this money and he begins to give rights to children. He begins to actually give money to parents who are willing to take in orphans. And, and, and almost overnight, Christianity turns from being a persecuted minority to being an empowered majority. And, and although this was no one's plan, this was, there was no one's intent behind this, all of a sudden, all of a sudden right here, Christianity becomes inseparable from empire. And, and, and the church leaders, they just created their own version of the temple model. Just had, you know, just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in on top. So now, now we have more sacred places and we have these sacred men who go around and they're very intentionally collecting the sacred texts. And, and here's what they do. They collect these sacred texts, the texts of the church, and they bind them together. 
And then they chained them to the altar because they wanted to be the ones who would control what was taught and who heard what. They didn't want people to have access to the Bible. This is no better understood than, than perhaps what maybe some of you guys heard in school called the Arian controversy. It's a theological controversy. And, and the only reason we're going to go into this is because I'm sure if you're like myself, right, you probably argue at your dinner table on a regular basis about the Arian controversy, right? <laughs> yeah? No, no, probably not. So the Arian controversy, again, a theological controversy over the word begotten. So it's, it's was Jesus born divine or did he become divine. So that's, that's what the word begotten and the Arian controversy was all about. So you have this, this church leader named Arius. Now, Arius believed that Jesus was given the gift of divinity because he was so faithful to God during his earthly ministry. And, and then you have this other guy, Athanasius, along with the majority of the church leaders who, who disagreed with Arius and said, no, in fact, Jesus was born divine. And so you have, you have in this in this land, in this Roman Empire, this Holy Roman Empire, this division in the church. The problem was Constantine, he's looking at this, he's like, man, like this Christianity thing's doing good for me. Like, why are you guys arguing over this stuff? So he calls together a council meeting and he says, come on together, let's get this figured out. But the, the problem with this was, is that Constantine, I mean, he was, he was a king, right? I mean, he was an emperor, he was no theologian. And, and I mean, he was so much not a theologian uh, that he waited until his deathbed to even be baptized because in his mind, he was like, okay, if I wait until my deathbed to be baptized, then all the bad things that I've done, and there was lots, all the, <laughs> then they'll all be covered, right? I mean, just like, just to make sure. And so, so again, like he, he wasn't a theologian. He was a king, he was an emperor, but you know what? He bankrolled this, this council meeting. And so everyone's gonna be super nice to him. And, and so the, during this debate, uh, we find that Athanasius persuaded persuasively one, and you, we get this Nicene Creed. The, the problem, though, with, with this creed and, and with, this, with, this, uh, with this time is that in the creeds, there is no mention of love. There, there is no mention of behavior, right? Because again, Constantine was bankrolling this thing. And so they had to be very careful because he was a king. He was an emperor. He did all the things that kings and emperors you'd expect them to do. And so you have this Nicene Creed, which is supposed to like end this division in the church. But I mean, if you guys have ever been in an argument with like your brother or sister, or if you're a parent, you've seen your siblings battling it out and you step in and you end that argument. Like how many of you guys, um, your, your kids walk away and the argument's done? Like, no one raised their hand, which is, which is true, right? I mean, that doesn't happen with my kids either. And the same thing here. And so Constantine, he puts out this, this edict. And, and I wanna read just like the last portion of this edict because I think in some ways it explains uh, some of what we're experiencing today. So here's what he writes. He says, I hereby make this public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. And so now theological division was heresy that was punishable by death. Suddenly believing the wrong thing was a crime. And now you have Christians arresting Christians. Now all of a sudden in Christianity, what you believed trumped how you behaved. And almost overnight, all of Christianity became creedal. And we got lots of great theology from these creeds, but again, there was no mention of love, no real mention of behaviors in these creeds. And, and that's because over the years, I mean, 
These emperors, they just bankrolled the church. And so why, why would you have to be real? I mean, if you're a church leader and someone else is footing the bill for what you're doing, building all these buildings and making, I mean, paying your, paying your salary, like you better make sure you keep them happy. You had to be very careful what you put in these Christian creeds. And so consequently, during this period of history, and I'm convinced during all of history, no one was ever really persecuted because they loved someone too much, Right? Persecuted for what you believed, yes, but not because of how you behaved. And so now all of a sudden you have the church version, the Christian version of the temple model, right? You, 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 you have sacred men, these sacred men who, who, are, who are through the withholding of sacraments, the withholding of communion, the withholding of baptism, the threat of excommunication, that they're keeping the people under their thumb, right? That they determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Now, all of a sudden, the Pope and the priests and the bishops, now all of a sudden, they're the ones with power. I mean, it's like everything is flipped on his head. And now, all of a sudden, these church leaders are the ones in power and the kings and the, and the lords of the land. Like, now they're the ones in fear, living in fear of the Pope and the priests and the bishops. Then fast forward a little bit, a little bit further. I mean, in the 11th century, as you know, the first successful crusade was launched. Pope Urban II, he launched this crusade with the promise that, that if you participated, that all of your sins would be forgiven. And so the knights, and the, the, the lords of the land who, who'd been living pretty awful lives, right? I mean, they had lots of stuff to be forgiven for. And so like, I can't be forgiven of all, okay. And so you, you get all these like awful people to sign up to join this crusade with the promise of the forgiveness of their sins. And they rape and they pillage their way clear across Europe, all the way through Constantinople, all the way to Jerusalem. And, and somewhere along this way, you know, someone had the bright idea like, okay, if this is like blessed by God, because the Pope said so, like, why don't we just go ahead and take care of the Jews? Because you know what? The Jews are the ones ones that killed Jesus anyways. So let's just go ahead and take care of them. And the spirit of anti-Semitism rose to an all-time high during this, during this time. And suddenly, suddenly the temple model, it was back. It was just a Christian version, right? I mean, you had sacred places, sacred men who controlled the sacred text by making sure that no one had access to them, by, by interpreting them the way that they wanted it to be interpreted. And all of a sudden, this movement that was supposed to be fueled by a love for one another, it almost came to a screeching halt. Had it not been for the monastic movement and a few, a few group of people who knew what the Jesus movement was all about. All right, so fast forward several hundred more years. We got uh, the Protestant Reformation in the year 1517, right? Marks the beginning of this Protestant Reformation. Now, now Martin Luther, he was, not, he was not trying to abandon the church, right? But he was just trying to reform the church. So the word reformation. But, but then though you got those like inside the church that feel threatened by this. And they're like, no, he, he's protesting the church. And so that's the Protestant Reformation, uh, but Martin Luther, what, what he did is he was condemning the selling of indulgences. This, this theological idea that the leaders in the church, that they had the ability to determine who would go where and, and how long someone would be in purgatory. And, 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 and they're like, but, but it doesn't say that in the gospels. Like Jesus never taught that. And so he condemns, he condemns this teaching because it can't be found anywhere in the gospels. And so consequently, you know, he begins to try and reform the church. And as you probably know, Martin Luther, he was excommunicated, but you know what? He didn't care because he didn't believe that the Pope had the power to excommunicate anybody anyways. And so then within the context of the Reformation, you have all these solas that come to light. And, and, and the one that's the hallmark of Protestantism, 
is sola fide, which means by faith alone. And that it's the belief that salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. And so Martin Luther and the others, they begin teaching this. And then the printing press comes along. And you have William Tyndale, right, who, who is, uh, who, who's trying to make the text available to the people, but he actually gets killed for doing this. And then you have Martin Luther, who's trying to take the text, translate it into German, bring it to his people in their language so they can understand what Jesus actually taught. And he gets hunted down like a dog. The, the other solas that the Reformation gave us was sola scriptura, because the reformers believe, like many of us believe, that the scriptures, not the church, the scriptures have the authority for mankind. But, but the problem was uh, that the church leaders were so adamant about opposing this. Because, I mean, think about it, right? I mean, if you're a church leader in that day, like the church had the authority to determine how people behaved, how much money they should give, and all this kind of stuff. And now all of a sudden, everything is shifting. And you're saying that now the scriptures have the authority in my life? And so this was, this was a threat to the church. And Martin Luther, Martin Luther, he says this. He says, a man, a simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. And without meaning to, I think without even really understanding what just happened, suddenly in the hands of the reformers, in the hands of the Protestant church leaders, the Bible, the scriptures became the very same thing, the very same thing that papal authority had been before it. It became a weapon. The reformers, I mean, they, they were armed with scriptures. They, they did exactly what, what the church leaders had done before them. And so consequently, the Reformation, right, it split into three, six, a dozen, a thousand different denominations over the years. And, and you know what split the Protestant Reformation? You know what split Protestantism? It certainly wasn't because like this denomination loved better than this one. And so we're gonna, and it wasn't that. No, it was what we believed. And so now you have a thousand different denominations all over the world because of an interpretation of the text. Now, now uh, in this Protestantism, you have, you have more sacred men with sacred places and the sacred text interpreting, determining who goes into heaven and what you have to do to stay out of hell. And Protestants have been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. The tragedy of this, of, of the tale of our church, the tragedy of this is that love lost. And I think that, I think that even if you and I were there, Shay, I think even if you and I were pastors in this, I think we would have just been wrapped right up with this. The tragedy of all this is that love lost. We just simply ended up with two, three, a half a dozen versions of the temple model with just Jesus sprinkled in on top. Okay, so this next part of the sermon, I'm just gonna totally make up because it's not actually found anywhere in scriptures. Um, but I have to imagine that at some place in all of this chaos, right, Jesus and the apostle Paul are, are peering over the banister of heaven. And, and Jesus is like, Paul, like, how did it come to this? Paul, I, I know you were doing your temple model thing over there and whatever, dealt with you on that. Um, but like, how did it come to this? I made it so crystal clear, Paul. Like I got all of my followers together, all the disciples together right before the end of my life. And Paul, I washed their stinking feet. And, and, I, and I said, I said, I said, as I have loved you, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, 
By this, you'll know you're my disciples. Paul, he was like, okay, Jesus, like, yeah, I mean, and I'm so glad, I'm so glad you said that, I'm so glad you did that, and what a great example, but, but Jesus, I took it one step further. I wrote mine down, right? And, and I told them, I said, the only thing that counts, and they all knew that I had the whole Old Testament memorized. I said, the only thing that counts is your faith, your faith in Christ, expressing itself through love. I couldn't have been more clear. And then I'm sure Peter, right, Apostle Peter, he comes walking up. And he's like, Jesus, I am so embarrassed. I mean, you had, you had a nice garden tomb. That was great. Did you see the monstrosity they built over my burial site? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And he said, and I made it clear too. I made it clear too. I said, have sincere love for one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. How did it come to this? How did it come to this? How, how did this happen? How did something that was so clear become so complicated? How, how could this new movement of Jesus with this new command, with this new ethic of love, I mean, how, how did it come to this? How did it become so temple model? I think the reason for this is that there's a little bit of temple model in each and every one of us. I, I think there's a little bit in each and every one of us. I mean, what, what we fear what we view as sin, I mean, what we believe God condemns and doesn't. It's been taught to us, right? It's been taught to us in such a way, in such a way that our consciences, our consciences have been shaped by it. And so consequently, the things that are holding us back are holding the church back. And maybe you're thinking like, really? Is there really some temple? I mean, okay, Jason, maybe you and Shay got a little bit of temple model on you, but really not. Okay, so just check this out. I got, a couple, I got a couple scenarios for you, and I just want you just in this moment just to really like think about where you're at. Like, is this really in you? Okay, so have you ever wondered how close to sin, like where's that line? How close to sin can I get without actually sinning? And, and as a youth pastor for like 12 years, um, Tell you what, every single like junior high boy up through like 10th grade, after 10th grade, they didn't care as much anymore. They just did it anyways. But like they, how, can I touch her? Can, can I, what, what am I allowed to do without that? But the problem is this question assumes that God's stupid, right? I mean, it's because you're not actually asking like, God, how close to you can I get? You're saying, God, uh, I want to get close to sin without ticking you off. And that's temple model thinking. Okay, how about this one? Um, have you ever felt more guilty have you ever felt more guilty about missing church than you did about how you treated your spouse or maybe your neighbor or your coworker? That's temple model thinking. Here's, here's one that I've gotten a couple times over the years and, and in, the, in the past, right? You're gonna, we're gonna get more and more of these, right? Um, and it's a little bit of a sensitive issue, but I'm just gonna go ahead and go there. If you've ever feared for the eternal destiny of your child based on whether or not they were baptized, that's temple model thinking. And this kind of strikes close to uh, our heart and our family because uh, my wife, Laura, um, she was born a month premature and uh, her grandma, bless her heart, uh, she was nervous that Laura wouldn't make it. All of us were. I mean, I didn't know her at that point, but the family was. Uh, <laughs> and, and so Laura's grandma, like she, she snuck in some holy water into the NICU and baptized her in the hospital because of fear of where she might end up. That's temple model thinking. Temple model thinking. How about this one? Do other people's sins elicit or bring out feelings of superiority or compassion? 
I, I mean, think about this one. Have you ever made excuses for the way people behave and talk? Like, well, they're Republicans. Of course they're going to talk like that. Or, or like, well, they're Democrats. I mean, can you blame them? Or they're Baptists, or they're Catholic, or they're Protestant, or they're charismatic. Like, or what? That's temple model thinking. It's that little bit of the wrong thing that's, that's infiltrating, but has the potential to ruin the whole thing. Do your beliefs, do your theology. Has it ever gotten in the way of loving someone? Uh, for, for my family, I have two siblings who several years ago uh, told us that they were living active homosexual lifestyle. And, and this is really something, again, like in, in a conservative Christian family, something we really had to wrestle through. Like, it, are our beliefs gonna prevent us from loving them? And, and I know my brother, uh, he and I, he, he got married a couple of years ago and he and I in that process of he was, he was talking to me and, and trying to process about what my parents were thinking and, you know, and, and, and what I, and I said like, Stephen, even though like, uh, even though you know I disagree with this, with, with, with your choice uh, and your lifestyle, like even though, even though you know that, like one of the things I want you to hear is, is I love you. I love you. And I don't, want, uh, I don't want my beliefs and my theology to prevent us and our family from loving you. I, I said, when, when, when you guys end up having kids someday, like I want my kids to actually be your kids, our kids' cousins. I, have your beliefs ever gotten in the way of loving other people? That's temple model thinking. It's in all of us. Our consciences have been shaped by it. But imagine, imagine if we were free from it. I mean, imagine in a world where every single follower of Jesus got up every single day and had confidence in the fact that I am fine with God. Now I must go and find ways to be fine with other people so that they can be fine with God. And, and I think the thing that is getting in our way, I think the thing that prevents us is that it's just simply a failure to understand the gospel. And the gospel is so super simple is that Jesus Christ, God himself, came down to earth 2,000 years ago. He died for my sins and for yours. And then he rose from the dead and it's simply believing him, believing that this idea that if Jesus, if Jesus is willing to die for me, that he is for me. And, and when the gospel, when that right now, you can even do that right now in your seat. You can believe that right now. And when that gets into your heart, when you really grasp that, that, that God, that Jesus and our heavenly father, that they are 100% for me, that there is nothing, there is no sin that removes me from his love. There is no measure, no bounds to his grace and his mercy. When that gets into our hearts, then, then, there, then that begins to shape our behavior, that that begins to shape our consciences and determine our behavior. What if that, what if that first century love, what if that first century one another characterized this church? What if, what if that characterized Grumlaw? I mean, imagine if each and every one of us here in this room one anothered one another in this way. I mean, we would transform. We would see the gospel transform all of Grand Blank. I mean, imagine the impact that it would have on our marriages if we loved our spouse in this way and our, and our children. How about our neighbors? I mean, just think about your community and the people you live around. Imagine the impact. What if God's love for us and for those around us began to inform our consciences and shape 
our behaviors, when that happens, and only when that happens, not until it happens, will they know that we are Christians by our love.